Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, session 424. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 424 you're listening to. My guest today is London-based producer, mixing and mastering engineer, Kevin Paul, who has worked with Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, David Bowie, Depeche Mode, Goldfrapp, and Paul Simon, amongst many, many others. And Kevin and I have a fantastic conversation about his time in audio, his podcast, and his passion for education. So, Kevin Paul coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about freelance challenges. Yeah, no big secret here. A lot of challenges in what we do as audio professionals, those of us that are doing freelance work. A lot of unpredictability, unpredictable, you know, not only unpredictable schedules, but clients, unpredictable pay, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on and on. I think you all know all of that. That's not news to you. If you're younger and you're just kind of getting into it, yeah. Or even if you're older and you're just getting into it, yeah, it's unpredictable. That's the short story. Yeah, it can be a little dark. It can be uncomfortable. The trick is, is to know that there is another side to it. There's a bright side to it. There's great clients you meet who become friends. There's great rates of pay, great projects any accolades that may or may not come with a project. You know, there's a great side to all of it too. So obviously the trick that we all have to manage is how we deal with the uncomfortable parts. How to handle things like, you know, one minute you're, you've got a whole week of work booked and then the next minute, uh, no, that's on hold and you're not getting paid. And yet you've just carved that out of your schedule. How do you handle that? How do you handle last minute cancellations like that, that are longer or, or even smaller ones that, you know, maybe you interrupt your family schedule for and then, you know, say, oh yeah, I'm not gonna be able to make it. I have to go do this job and then the job cancels. And, you know, maybe that affected other people in your life. Obviously the financial end of it, great challenge. Maybe you've got $5 in your checking account and you're counting on a gig the next day to pay your rent and that gig cancels and maybe you, mistakenly bought a piece of gear that you thought would get paid for by that gig. And now your $5 now becomes negative $500, right? So I think at the end of it all, it all comes to planning ahead, you know, thinking of it like chess, thinking five moves ahead, thinking about, okay, well, what if the gig cancels? How much money do I have in my account? You know, obviously we want to be thinking about the worst case scenario, planning for disaster. Obviously, keeping your checking account flush is a smart thing to do so you can operate with a little headroom. I know all of us know what headroom is in audio, but financial headroom is just as important. So making sure that we're on top of our shit, you know, on, on our on the last episode, I talked about, you know, keeping your house in order. And this is kind of piggybacking on that concept. It's all about preparation and planning. And it's not just about getting the gig and you know fulfilling the gig it's it's all the preparation around it this is all the working class audio shit i've been talking about for many years these are the things we need to plan for making sure the account's full making sure that uh if nobody calls next month or you don't make any opportunities for yourself making sure that you're covered right and you know there is the mental health part of it too because i know uh, that many of us can get really depressed about some of this stuff sometimes. It's like, man, nobody's calling me. I'm you know, trying to get gigs and nobody's responding. And it's really frustrating when that happens. I totally identify with that. You know, there's a lot of different sites for work out there. Fiverr, Upwork, Soundbetter, Engineers, uh, various things like that where you can apply for gigs. And it's frustrating when people come back and go, no, I went with somebody else that's cheaper. And this this goes back to another rant, even a few more episodes ago, where I was bitching about, you know, everybody racing to the bottom with their prices. All these rants are blending into one another right now. 
It's a combination of many, many things. There's many layers to the onion of being a freelancer. So kind of coming back to something I've talked about endlessly for years to help you prepare is the diversification element. It is the one thing you can do to insulate yourself from uncertainty. You know, it's, it's, it's a layer of protection. If you put all your eggs in one basket and one day that gig just dries up, then you're hosed, right? I've talked about that endlessly. You all know how that works. So at the end of the day, know this, there's going to be uncertainty, cancellations, unpredictability, all the bad stuff is going to exist. You can counter that with better preparation. The things you do today will affect things in the future. If you keep yourself surrounded by multiple income streams, it's gonna save you for when one of your income streams fails. And when you do all that and you kind of keep all this in order, it's not 100% guaranteed you're not gonna be affected, but you're gonna be in a better position. And, and I think that that will directly affect your mental health, about how you feel about not only yourself, but your career. Because I know that some of you out there are asking yourself sometimes, what am I doing? Like, is this worth it? Sometimes I get to that point and I just scratch my head and just go, you know, is this the right thing to be doing? Sometimes it doesn't all work out. It's definitely not all rosy. So prepare yourself, insulate yourself, plan. Don't think day to day. Don't do it. And don't wear rose-colored sunglasses when looking at all of this. You have to put on your sober sunglasses or your sober glasses so that you can see clearly that it can get rough. And if you prepare yourself, you can weather those storms that come and they will come. No doubt about it. I know I'm kind of all over the place here, but I've encountered some of this stuff. I know that a lot of you have encountered it. Those of you who haven't, you will. At the end of the day, it's all about staying in the game, right? Keeping your head above the water. I know you can do it. Stay positive. Don't let the uncertainty and the uncomfortable nature of all this take you down. I'll see you out there. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Let's get to it. Kevin Paul here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Matt. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you here. We have a lot to cover, so I'm just going to get right to it. Where did you grow up? I grew up here in London, England. Been here my whole life. Been fortunate enough to travel pretty much to every continent to make music. So feel pretty blessed, personally. When you were growing up, did music or technology was it attractive to you? Was it something that pulled you in? And who who introduced you to those things? For me, growing up, music wasn't really that attractive. Music at the time for me was my mum and dad's record collection, which was quite a lot of musicals mm. on vinyl, obviously, and a bit of Elvis, a bit of ABBA. But that was kind of about it. And then obviously the television introduced me to music, but the music on TV was a bunch of middle-class people complaining about how crap their lives were. <laughs> people like The Smiths and The Cure. And at the time, I just thought, oh, this is awful. I don't want to hear music like this. And then one day at school, somebody had a cassette recording of something that I'd absolutely never heard before. It was a recording of a pirate radio station with a DJ called Tim Westwood at the time, who, who went on to become a very successful DJ. And I said, what's that? That sounds really cool. Because he was playing like electro. And he said, oh, it's this pirate radio station, LWR. And that was it. I was totally captured by the, the sound of music that was coming from like three and a half, five, four thousand miles away on the other side of the Atlantic. Mm. That was my introduction, really, to music for me. And I got very much into hip-hop culture, graffiti, DJing, things like that. And I was always the guy in our group of people who made stuff work. So if we had to set something up or something wasn't working, I was the guy people said, can you come and help me do this? Because mm. I don't know how the, the hi-fi isn't working. Why are the speakers not working? So I'd be the guy that does that. And I really wanted to be a DJ, actually. That was, you know, a hugely popular thing at the time. Mm -hmm. This is probably around 
87, 88. And it was just the start of dance music from America, New York, Detroit, techno, things like that. And for one reason or another, I didn't know enough of the right people, whatever. I couldn't make it as a DJ. And I thought, uh, by the time I got to about 19, 20 years old, I thought, I really need to do something with my my life, essentially. Mm-hmm. And on the backs of records, we all noticed producer, we knew who the artists were, but there was this guy, recording engineer, and I thought, hmm, what does, what, what's that do? And there was a local magazine, an English-based magazine called Home and Studio Recording, which was available in the newsagents. So I just thought, okay, I'll grab that. And from there, I learned that a recording engineer was the guy who put things together, made things work. And I thought, that's the job that I want to do. So from there, obviously, way before internet, I got a list of recording studios from the APRS. I phoned them. They sent a thing out to me in the post. I went through literally every single one that was London-based until I got to a studio called Soho Studios. Not the Soho Studios that maybe people would recognise now. This was a very small studio. It wasn't actually a really good studio. But the guy there gave me a job. And what it allowed me to do is to learn signal flow. So from there, I learned how the studio worked. I learned how the chain of audio moved around the studio. I learned MIDI, Simpty, just basic recording. And that was my introduction to music and the studios, really. When you got that list, did you just start calling all the studios and seeing who would be willing to entertain the idea of hiring you? Yeah, essentially. And you'd walk around them as well. You'd just go, okay, here you go. I've got five in the West End of London. Let me go around there and see who wants to give me a job. And some of them said no. Some of them said, do you have a CV? I'm like, CV? What's a CV? (laughs) Yeah. like I'm like 19 years old, maybe a little bit older at the time. But I got to this one, Soho Studios, and the guy said, when can you start? Can you come back tomorrow? I was like, yeah, absolutely. And that's how it all began. Wow. Was this person, did they sit down with you and walk you through all the signal flow steps, or did they make you sit in the back and watch sessions for a period of time? Well, the studio owner was a bit of a sleazebag, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) And... I don't know how many months I was there, five, six months, we had one paying session. And no one used the studio apart from the group of engineers that all knew the owner. And they all used it for their own individual purposes. But I had loads of free time in the studio. So engineer Steve Dubb, who was a guy who who went on to work with the Chemical Brothers and, and loads of other successful bands in the UK, he showed me how the studio works. So that's great. And then he'd disappear for a week or two, and then he'd come back and blag a couple of days in the studio. I mean, it was a it was a really badly run organisation, and everyone just kind of abused the fact that the owner was a bit of a sleazebag. Mm. But like I say, my, my first actual session in the studio was a live mix session to picture of Sepultura. Wow. With a female engineer, which was very novel at the time. And I'd never heard Sepultura before. In fact, I'd never heard any of that kind of music ever. And I was genuinely in shock. I thought, (laughs) what is this? And if this is what working in a studio is like, I'm not sure I'm going to be here that long. Because she had it full blast on the big speakers for the entire time. But like I say, I just learned signal flow. That's all I learned there. I learned how the studio worked, and eventually we got some friends to come up and we'd like try and make records. But we didn't have a clue as what we were doing, really. We were into sampling and dance music and things like that. So we learned how to sequence. We learned how to record. And that was it, really. I mean, it was very innocent. Were you being paid? I was paid a, a nominal wage by the owner of the studio, but repeatedly had to ask him to get paid because he was just a a, a sleazebag, basically. Yeah. A horrible man. Well, did that that experience, him being a sleazebag, 
Did that turn you off at all from the the concept, or did you think, okay, there's got to be a better place than this? Yeah, exactly. No, that, that I mean, essentially, I used the studio to know what to do, and then one day I said to Steve, I said, look, Steve, I need another studio. Where can I go? And he said, look, phone the studio, and the studio was called Conk Studios. It's run by the Kinks. So they're looking for an assistant. Tell them that you know me and see what happens. And I did that and I went along for an interview and I had to persuade the manager to give me a trial because she said, nah, you're slightly too old. You're 21. <laughs> and we're looking for like a junior. Like, And I'm like, well, just give me a chance and see what I can do. She said, oh, okay. She looked through the, the diary. She said, okay. We've got a session starting on January the 21st. It's got a house engineer. Come along to that. You can work with Dave for two weeks, and we'll see how you go. And I stayed there for nearly three years. Wow. Yeah. Obviously, it went well. Yeah, it, it went well because I wanted to be there. I was keen and ready to go, really. I loved it. What were the takeaways from from your time there? What do you think you learned from that experience? At Soho, I learned a couple of things. And still today, I, I, I do some lecturing, which maybe we'll talk about later. And I still mention these things to my students. One of them is learn signal flow. Learn how audio moves around the studio. Because I think some people have no concept of how audio works above and beyond the space that they work in. Because if they only work at home, they don't know what happens when you go to another studio? Because they don't know the language, they don't know the the concept of, of tie lines, microphones, patch bays. They just don't know it because they don't experience it if they're just at home in one place. And the other thing is, and this was done by a, a man called Tom Fredericks, who is now a very successful music industry lawyer. He said to me, every time you try to mix a record, put your watch down on the desk and see how long it takes you to get it to a point that you're happy. And then, the next time you do it, try and beat the time. And try and get your mixing done as quickly as possible. And I've, I've held on to those things, well, unfortunately, for over 30 years. And what about your time at Conk? What was the takeaway from that place? Because you were there at Conk longer than you were at Soho, right? Yeah. And at Conk... We had a great time because at the time that I was there, it was a really buzzing studio, great vibe in the studio, two fantastic rooms there, one with a great mixing room with an SSL, the other with a fantastic recording room with a with a classic Neve. Mm. So we had both kind of best of both worlds there. And I was very lucky to work with so many good engineers and so many good producers. We made a lot of records there. You maybe didn't have so much downtime as I would have had at the first place, but the education that you had in terms of how records were made mm -hmm. was just invaluable. We made records from the first note to mastering. So the takeaways were really just, this is the job. It was very difficult, long hours a lot different to how it is now. We don't make records in the same way anymore. When I first started, the studio was the only place to make a record. It's now the last place you go to make a record. <laughs> yeah, for better or for worse. Yeah, for better or for worse. But I mean, that's just how it is. So it just taught me a lot of discipline, actually, I think, and dedication to the job. I think that one thing that a lot of people these days don't get the exposure of, like you did at Conk, is that exposure to multiple ways of making a record through various engineers. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, again, in the same way as knowing how lots of studios work, knowing how lots of people work, that's, that's how you build up your bag of tricks. You know, I, I always, I like to sort of look at production, mixing, recording, very similar to cooking. Mm-hmm. We all have the same ingredients in the studio, but you give five engineers the same ingredients, they're going to come up with something completely different. Very similar themes, but they'll be completely different in, in taste and approach. 
And like I say, I was lucky. I worked with so many great producers with so many different kinds of bands. So I had a real broad education. And then I was even luckier that I went to Mute and I got an even broader range of bands at Mute and an even broader range of production over there, you know. Tell me about that. Was it another studio, Mute? Mute. Mute is a, still is, independent record label. Oh, okay. It was a hugely successful label in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. They had, at one end of the spectrum, they had huge bands like Depeche Mode, Moby, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, mm. Erasure, Goldfrap. At the other end of the spectrum, they had artists who just basically generated sonic noise and avant-garde experimental music. So you had such a diverse selection of music and audio that, again, you could learn lots of different things from lots of different people. And what was your role there? What were you doing? I was asked by the studio manager who used to use Conk a lot for... We used to do a lot of archiving at Conk for Mute. And he said, do you fancy coming over to the studio? We want to expand the studio into a commercial enterprise. And we would like you to come over and just help us out. See if, we, see if you can help us do that. I said, yeah, sure. To be honest, I kind of undernarred about it for a bit because potentially it was a step down in terms of the quality of the spaces. But in terms of the opportunity that I had, which would to be an actual engineer and not a second assistant, mm -hmm. it would give me a much more hands-on role within the complex. We had two rooms and an editing room. And again, we built the studio up. We got loads of clients to come in, lots of different kinds of music. We did a lot of stuff from Mute as well. That was where I got my, my hands dirty, quite honestly. That was where I transitioned from boy to man, if you like. Yeah. They were a record label with studios. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Got it. We had the top floor of the studio. Yeah, they just said, we want it to be a, a money-generating department. Can you help us do that by working there and, and bringing people that you knew over to there? Et cetera, et cetera. And you say that's where you really made the transition from boy to man there in terms of I, I think so. engineering. So what were the things that caused you to transition from boy to man? Well, you know yourself, Matt, once you sit in the chair and people are looking at you, <laughs> the, the job suddenly becomes a lot harder. Yeah. You know, while you're sitting at the back of the room making tea and plugging stuff up, it's nowhere near as pressurizes once you get in that chair again I, I tell my students a lot don't rush to get into the chair because once you're in the chair all eyes are on you and you've got to know what you're doing you know and if you don't know what you're doing you've got to pretend that you know what you're doing or at least try and work out what you're doing it was a real baptism of fire you were in the front seat and people were asking you to help them make records you know so all of the things that i'd watched and learned over at Conk, I now had to put into practice and find out for myself what they actually did, what I liked, what I didn't like, what I'd like to develop, and so on. And I was, again, quite lucky. I think the label had maybe 50, maybe more artists. I probably worked with all of the artists over the years that I was there. Some of them were really simple in their makeup in terms of how they worked. Some of them were incredibly complicated. If you're working with Depeche Mode, you're working with one of the biggest bands in the world at the time, mm -hmm. and you had to know what you were doing. You were working under great producers like Flood, like Alan. That was my first introduction to both of those people. Alan Mulder, for those who aren't keeping track of who we're talking about. Yeah, Alan Mulder. So... It was a baptism of fire. You you were thrown straight into the frying pan and just like, okay, let's see if you can survive. It's a complex position to be in. Would you would you agree? Yeah, I I think the studio at the time and the type of artist that we worked with, a lot of it was collaboration. Mm. A, a lot of it was like, okay, I'm an artist. I kind of maybe it's my first few times in the studio. I don't quite know what I'm doing here. Kevin, what do you think? What can we do? And in which case, you're like, okay, let's try this. And, and you know, you were sharing 
the burden of responsibility to make a record. Some artists came in with exactly what they wanted to do and they knew what they were doing. So you have to take a, a different view there. Then you had the, the heavyweights and they had teams of people around them, producers, engineers, programmers, roadies, people that, that, that helped them make the, the bands and the records that they wanted to make. So there was a, a lot of different kind of styles and ways to make music. Some of it very bizarre because it was literally sonic noise. It wasn't musical in its, its makeup. And some of it's very challenging sonically and the methods that they would record. Anything went. Mm. Recording gravel, sliding down a chute. <laughs> recording in the stairwells and throwing things around. You know, whatever you think, we tried it there. And Daniel, the record owner, Daniel Miller, the record label owner, he encouraged absolutely everything. There was nothing you couldn't do in the studio unless it was illegal And when it came to making records. Did you feel the studio was well-equipped? It wasn't Abbey Road. Right. But we had a really good desk. We had a decent recording room. We had lots of synthesizers and samplers and instruments. You could make good records there. We made great sounding records in that studio. Between Conk and Mute, how were you surviving financially? Was it tough? Did you have to have a second job or were you paid well? Conk, I was paid, Conk, I was paid 75 pounds a week. Plus we had decent overtime there. So if you worked a lot, you got paid quite well. And fortunately at Conk, you worked a lot. 70, 80 hours a week was the kind of norm for the entire time that I was there. Mute, a lot better paid, decent people who understood the concept of living. And because we were attached to the record label, we were able to do that a lot better. So you didn't have to worry about that, really. I think I probably got paid quite well at Mute, actually, relatively to a lot of engineers at studios, I would have thought, at that time. How long was your, your time at Mute? I was there for over 10 years. And then I spent another few years after the record company was sold in about 2004 as a freelancer. So in that 10-year period, did the studio essentially remain the same as far as its physical layout? Yeah, yeah. Studios there, you know, wow. we, we saw, we saw the transition through to digital technology, mm -hmm. Pro Tools, Logic Audio, Cubase Audio, all of that was kind of like in its infancy at that time, you know, from what's that? Yeah. 94 onwards. Yeah. I would say that's about right. Yeah. Wow. I bet you knew that place like the back of your hand. Yeah. Well, you had to, right? And I think most in-house people need, that's what you're there for. You need to know the studio. You need to know where you're going. And I think that also helps when you go to other studios because you're not afraid to kind of find out how things work mm -hmm. because you've done it all. You've seen it all. There's not much you haven't seen. So in that 10-year period, you worked with Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, correct? That's correct, yeah. A number of times. I don't think I've ever talked to anybody that I know that's worked with Nick Cave. So can you tell me about working with him and, and things you learned about making records from, from artists like him? The Bad Seeds are one of the most unique bands probably ever. Mm -hmm. And the way they make records is probably like no other band ever. I had worked with various members of the Bad Seeds over the, the 10 years that I was at Mute individually. And then they said one day, okay, we want you to go and do some recording with Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. And you're going down to Abbey Road and we're going down to Studio Studio Two in Abbey Road. That's where you're going to be recording. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's that's a that's a big one. And the thing about the bad seeds and, and Nick is that you need to be ready to record. There's no delay in oh, something isn't working, we're not ready. They come in the studio. If you're lucky, they'll say, hello, how are you? Not in a silly way, but they just, they're very focused and they know what they're doing. 
They come in the studio. If you're lucky, you've got time for them to grab a coffee. They go down to the instruments and they start playing as a band. And if you're not in record, you've missed it. And they don't say, Kevin, are you ready? They start playing. And we're talking about multi-tape recorder here. We're not talking about Pro Tools where you can leave it running for five hours. It's like you have to be in play and record on the Studer, ready to go. And they just play. And they play and they play and they play for hours. And it's it's unlike any band that you'll you'll ever experience working with. And in those moments of needing to be in record, were you ever unprepared for that? No. <laughs> You knew ahead of time what was up. I knew ahead of time, but I also, I mean, even today when, when <laughs> for this podcast, I was set up ready to go 25 minutes before the session started, <laughs> right? It's just kind of like built right. into me. I want to be ready. When the artist turns up, I don't want to be plugging stuff in. I don't want to be testing stuff. I don't want to be seeing if there's a problem that I heard about last week. Yeah. I think that's just in the DNA of, of all of us who have been doing it a while. You just, <laughs> the artist says, oh, I'll be there at 1030. You're like, okay, great. I'll be there at seven or 830. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, it's just built in. It's just kind of there. I guess I must've done something right because they said you can come back tomorrow and you just got to, that's it. You're there. And I've worked with Nick for a very long time now. And it's seven people with very strong ideas, seven people who are very focused, and you've just got to be ready and just be in record. If you're in record, it doesn't matter. Everything else doesn't matter. As long as you're recording, that's it. And in the case like that, I assume that you you can't always count on the same instrumentation, so you kind of have to be flexible and yeah. have multiple yeah, mics yeah. for any instance. and. Yeah, you've got to have, you know, Nick plays three different instruments, maybe. Warren's got a set of violin loops, a guitar, a violin, a flute. You've got a drummer, two drummers sometimes, piano, God knows whatever else. You know, that initial recording stage, it's just them playing. And they all not, they do very little rehearsal. They don't rehearse their songs. They come in and they jam away and they go... That's it. That's the magic. There you go. Did you get that? Yeah, we got that. Don't worry. And that's that's it. It's amazing. And no other band does that. No other band. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Shifting the focus back into our world a little more. Mm-hmm. Not that many people get the opportunity to record at Abbey Road. It's a world-famous studio. It's been around for a very long time. What can you tell me, tell me and the audience, what is the difference 
that Abbey Road presents when compared to other studios? Is it just the allure of its past or is it truly an outstanding facility in all respects? The one thing I noticed about Abbey Road above everything else is that everything worked. Like everything worked. The old plates room that they have, the tiled room that's at the back of Abbey Road, that works. And it wasn't like, oh yeah, it sometimes works and you got to get the patch bay out, move it to the left. Everything worked, like everything. There was nothing that didn't work. And, and believe me, I tried to find something that didn't work. And it was incredible. The history of it, that's a big thing, but I've always been not too phased by surroundings or people, actually. There's not many people that have made me think, oh, oh, it's you, or I'm here. So that probably didn't bother me that much. But the facility is obviously un- unbelievable. I mean, it's incredible. And the staff, I assume. Is that- oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Everyone's just like on their game. So back to Mute. So you did that for 10 years, and then you did some freelance work for them. Yeah. Where did you go from there? Where did, where did your career head from there? Well, at the time of, of Mute being bought out, we were just entering surround sound mixing. And I managed to get asked by Mute to essentially remix their back catalogue of Depeche Mode, which at the time was 11 albums. And essentially what we were tasked to do was, like a lot of people with the Atmos, that everything's going on now, is recompile the original masters and mix them in surround. And that probably took about 18 months to do because we were, as I was listening to one of your episodes last week, actually, we were having to recompile everything, find out that if anything was missing, get the original producer to maybe come down if they were around and help us to uh, make sure that we got the right vibe on the records. We weren't remixing them, we were reconstructing them. Mm. We were trying to do what a lot of the labels are doing now with the Atmos catalogue mixing. So we had a lot of fun doing that. And then I did the same for the Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds catalogue, which I think, again, was like 12 albums. So I spent a good couple of years in in the surround world. And we're talking 5-1 essentially, right? 5-1 at the time, yeah. Yeah. 5-1 at the time. Super Audio CD was the idea. So that was that took up the next kind of chunk of your time for quite a yeah. while, I would assume, with that many records. Yeah, yeah, it was a good, yeah, a good two, two and a half, three years really in that place. We'd done, you know, by the end of it, I'd done thirty albums. Wow! And some of them were really difficult. Oh, I bet. But I bet in that time you really learned the ins and the outs of five point one. Yeah, and, and also you had to learn how to mix records like people like Flood. And people like Dave Bascom. Oh, yeah. And people like Steve Fitzmorris. We had to get inside these producers and these mixers' heads and go, okay, what would you have been doing back in 1991? Yeah. 1987. Nine, you know, and, and obviously some of the more later records, you had a much better recollection of, of how production techniques and mixing techniques existed because I'd experienced some of them. So it was a real great way to learn lots of different mixing styles. It was a fantastic education. Yeah. Now, since then, what have you been up to in in the last several years? What's been the focus of your world? Are you, I assume you're continuing to, to engineer. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like a lot of people, a lot of it is remote. If I'm lucky, I'll get to go out to somewhere really nice two or three times a year, spend a chunk of time outside the country or in another studio. I do a lot of work outside of the UK, Mm. particularly in Asia, in Taiwan, in China, mixing for a lot of bands in Europe. And I do a lot of education work. Education work for me, I've really got into I've always done lectures, always, for about 15 years, particularly in surround sound, actually. I taught for a long time in surround, still do. And over the last couple of years, I've had the feeling that 
the teaching of music production has become very boring. Mm. I think it's it's not talking about the right things enough for me. What are they talking about that you you feel is not that's making it boring? And how are you differing? Well, I think I think one of the, the concerns that I have is everybody's talking about how things work, and they're not talking about why they use them. Hmm. I can go on YouTube today and find a thousand videos about 1176 and how it works, but there's no one really talking about why you should be using that piece of equipment and what you can do with it to make your sound different. And one of the things that I try to teach at university is I, I say to my students, I say the first thing I say is, look, if you've just come here to learn how things work, you've wasted your time. You can just go on YouTube. You don't need to come here to learn how an 1176 works. But if you want me to show you how I would use it and what I would use it for and how you can be creative with it, this is the place where you should come. And this is what you should be seeking to learn. So I think a lot a lot of things that are happening with young engineers and producers is that they're not being taught how to be creative. They're just taught how things work. That's a very good point. That's very interesting. I never thought of it that way. Yeah, but you know, maybe some someone like yourself, some like the guests that you have, we were shown how to use that 1176 to the absolute maximum. Because we probably only had about two of them in the studio. Right. <laughs> right. As opposed to yeah. the unlimited amount of plugins we can yeah. have now. Yeah. So we had to know, well, you know what? If you distort this and then you kind of do that and then you put all buttons in and then let's say you've got a crappy room mic, you can now make a big, huge sound. No one's really talking about that. And that's just a small example uh, of that. And what are you going to do if you've only got an SM58 and then 1176, how are you going to make a record like that? And people say, well, you can't make a record like that. Well, yes, you can. You can make a record out of one microphone if you want. Damn straight. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Let's let's try and teach people some of the things that all of the producers, that yourself and me and everybody else that have been working for a long time, pre, let's say pre-digital, let's try and carry through some of those things and get people thinking about how to use things again. Because education has become, has become, for me, very stale in that aspect. I don't think it's been creative enough. And I'm very interested in that, actually, in, in changing that. I'm very interested in changing that. Now, kind of on the heels of the education thing, for the audience, if, if you're not aware, Kevin has a great podcast called Mix Bus with Kevin Paul, which I really encourage you to listen to. And I'll put a link in the show notes to it. Tell me about the podcast and, and what does that mean to you to have that, that show? The podcast, I literally was driving home one day and I listened to, you know, at the time, this is probably what, like two or three years ago, there were not many podcasts about music production. There's, there's your one for sure. I'm trying to think of what else there was. I don't think there was really anything other than maybe your one that I was aware of. Yeah, there was my buddy Lid Shaw's Recording Studio Rockstars. Oh, yeah, Recording Studio Rockstars, of course, yes. Yeah. This one. So there was maybe two or three. And I thought, do you know what? I, I, I know quite a few people, actually, who maybe haven't been interviewed before mm -hmm. from the UK audience and from the UK perspective. And I thought, hmm, maybe I'll call a few people up and see if they'll do it. And I thought... Yeah, maybe one or two will do it. It probably wouldn't really go anywhere. I ended up calling about 10 people. And to my astonishment, everybody said, yes, we'd love to do it. <laughs> I thought, oh, blimey. That means I'm going to have to do it now. Right. Be careful <laughs> what you ask for. Yeah, absolutely. So so that's that's that was the, the basis of how it became something. And you said you've listened to a few. Thank you. Most of it is about the creative aspect of, of recording. Mm -hmm. how, how are you making records with bands? How are you getting bands to perform? What kind of things are you doing that are kind of different to what other people are doing? Because again, it's about the creativity of recording. I think 
we've got stuck as young engineers and producers of going, ah, let's just record 15 takes, or actually let's record three takes into Pro Tools and we can chop it up and edit it and fix it. And that's not how records were made 15 years ago, 10 years ago, really. Records were made with really good musicians, creating an atmosphere in the studio with the producer and creating something that was totally unique to that situation. And I think if we look at the great bands of the modern era, whether they be electronic-based, rock-based, even pop-based, they've got something unique about them. And there's a whole load of other sterile, frankly, rubbish that's riding off the back of their coattails. And I want to make engineers and producers go back to being creative in the studio. Everything you're saying is resonating because while, you know, over the last several years with COVID, et cetera, kind of mm. forcing my hand, I've mostly been mixing and haven't been tracking much until recently. And it's amazing, like, uh, you know, bringing home tracks that I've recorded based on decisions and creativity that happened in the studio makes my mixing process so much easier. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. oh, it already sounds good because we made all those decisions then. Mm. And also mi mixing doesn't have to be, you know, mixing shouldn't, should be creative as well. It's, it's actually the part of the process that I enjoy the most. I'm in agreement. I think me personally... That's where I can add the most value in the record-making process. And, and I've always kind of felt that way. I think it's probably kind of a throwback to the DJing days, mm -hmm. mixing two records together, mixing an a cappella with an instrumental, and just being creative. So for me, that's where I'm really comfortable. But even in mixing, people have started to, to just be sterile and have less thought about mixing. And... Again, I think there's a lot of room for improvement in how we as an industry teach future generations of people to make records because otherwise it's just going to become really bland, really boring, and really sterile. And the machines will eventually take over. Right. Really. This is something I've dealt with for years. I'm sure you have to some degree, although you've worked with some great artists in some situations where there's some money, but like, Man, I've mixed some stuff where you get it and you're like, oh my God, these people spent nothing on this. And, mm. it, you know, either it poorly recorded or poorly arranged. Have you dealt with a lot of poorly done tracks where you felt like you could bring maximum value? And as, as, and I'll quote Tim Palmer, you know, Tim talks about, he calls it predicting, produ producing and mixing mm. because he gets tracks in and he really tries to add something special to it. Do you deal with that at all? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, obviously technology has allowed a lot of people to make records where otherwise they wouldn't have the budget to do so. And that's great, right? We, I, think, I don't think anyone can disagree that people making records is a bad thing. But you do get people coming to you that have a one-way view of how to make a record because they haven't had the luxury, I guess, of working with lots of different people. And a lot of bands are self-produced. They want to do it all themselves. And again, when people like ourselves, who, who maybe have quite a lot of history of, of how to make lots of different kind of music, we can add a, a very different perspective to those these artists. And actually, the predicting thing, I was listening to this episode where you mentioned that to, to someone can't remember the gentleman's name that you were interviewing, but I remember you talking about the predicting thing. And a lot of that is true. And the amount of times that you, you work with a, a young artist, fortunately, I could probably count on my two hands how many times I've heard something and gone, oh my God, this is going <laughs> to be difficult. I'm, I'm, I'm quite lucky. But when you send it back to them, you more often than not get, wow, I didn't hear the record that way. I love it. Or can we do some changes to, to do this? Now I've heard what you've done. I want to try and do something different. Mm -hmm. and, and the collaboration thing, I think that's, that again, the remote thing, 
has taken away an element of that, that that collaboration of us all being in one place. I think that will change in the next five, ten years with, you know, VR or AI. I think there'll be some really great opportunities for people to collaborate again because it's a little bit different when we're talking on the screen and it's a little bit different if we're talking with no screen and we're just collaborating with people over the internet or telephone. And I think, again, I worked with a lot of bands at Mute who, up until they came to Mute, had never, ever been in a recording studio. Mm. So I kind of always almost have a little bit of experience of that predicting anyway from the Mute days because a lot of bands were either unsigned or it was their first album or it was their second album and they were looking at us for guidance. And obviously we were happy to do that. We were like, yeah, of course, let's create something. You know, So we, we weren't really shy really. Let me ask you about working today. You've been at this slightly longer than I have. So you come to the table with all this experience and this know-how of record making and a grip on technology, yet budgets continue to, to drop. How do you deal with trying to keep a solid career today when budgets are what they are and you get offered less and less to do what you think you should be fairly well compensated for? The first thing that we as an industry of professionals has to do is to realize, is to know what we're worth. Mm -hmm. And I've pretty much had a very strict and policy of telling myself, I'd rather do one mix for X than two mixes for half the price of X. Because... I put the same effort into every mix. So why am I going to work twice as hard for the same amount of money? And that's not easy to always do. And of course, depending on various circumstances, you have to decide whether you can afford that luxury of saying that. But generally, as a rule, we as creative people, we're the last ones in the food chain. The record labels, they'll have us They'll have us working for free if we could, mm -hmm. quite frankly. And they always use the same lines. Well, you know, this is what the budget is, but so-and-so is going to do it for, you know, 500 pounds less. Or it's like, well, look, this is the price that I have to work for because otherwise I can't work for you how I want to work. And that discipline is not easy to always hold on to, really. Again, when talking to students, you, you have to be prepared to lose that job because if you're not prepared to lose the job, you'll always be taking whatever's being given to you rather than what you want. You know, And, and obviously, if Beyonce comes knocking and says, hey, Kevin, you want to come and mix some records Beyonce, this is what we're paying, and it's lower than what I'd like, the opportunity far outweighs the payment. So you say, hey, you know what? I'll work for free for Beyonce, really. Just pay the expenses because of the opportunity. You know, and it's, it's a very delicate balance as a professional creative person to stand your ground and know what you're worth. And there's a lot of talking about the Atmos mixing and the rate for Atmos. A lot of talking. But the reality is, if everyone stuck together and just went, no, this is the rate, because that's what it's worth. The record companies aren't going to say no. They're not going to go, okay, we won't make no more Atmos records anymore, right? And they won't make no more records anymore because they need they need us to do it, right? We, you know, I think one of the things actually technology has allowed us to do is to demonstrate what we're actually worth because for a long time people didn't really know what we did we went into a studio for three months and we made a record and then we came out of it and ta-da here was this production <laughs> yeah but now everyone thinks or everyone thought for a long time ah you can just sit at home and make a record now but people have started to realize over maybe the last five years maybe a bit longer that actually mixing a record is really hard Producing a record is really hard. Mastering a record is really hard because everyone's tried it now because they all have access to the technology. Mm -hmm. Even the A&R guys, 
they've tried to do their own mixing and mastering. I, I can guarantee you some of them, are, yeah, I can do this. No, you can't do this. It takes years of dedication. And, and again, come back to cooking. Not everyone can cook. Right. Not everyone can make a record. I can teach you how to cook and you can get better, but not everyone can do it the way you want it to, to be done. Yeah. So I think as an industry, and I think, again, this comes back to education, it's about educating young people to know what they're worth. Because there's a still a lot of money. In, the music industry is doing better than it ever has been. Yeah, that's for the right. the last 10, 15 years, right? Streaming has revolutionized the record labels, screwed over the artists, and it's screwed over the professionals, but the record companies are still making loads of money. So we need to say, ah, we deserve a little bit more of that pie. And, and the way to do that is to stand your ground and go, this is what we're worth, and you can either go somewhere else and it will be won't be as good, or you can come back to me and pay the... What do they say? Pay cheap, pay twice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's nothing like having somebody come back and say, hey, we spent all the money, and yeah, can you fix it? It's like, the price hasn't changed. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, look, my wife, she says, if there's some serious DIY in the house, it's like, okay, yeah, I'll have a go at that. She's like, no, no, no. You are not a decorator or a builder. You go to work, <laughs> earn your money, and then you can pay a professional to do it properly. Otherwise, you're going to do it twice. Yeah. And it's the same. Yeah, I have the same respect for electricians and plumbers and, yeah. and tradespeople. I'm like, let's just hire the people who do this every day. Yeah, exactly. And do it the way that I actually want it to be done rather than the way I, I can only do it. I might only be able to do it one way. Yeah. What is the health of the UK studio world and engineering world? Hmm. Well, we've lost a lot of good studios mm -hmm. where all of the things that I've discussed and you were brought up with and all of your, most of your guests would have been brought up with, that's disappearing, that thing. And like I say, it will come back to the education thing. What's replaced it? are these courses or master degrees, but what are they actually teaching these engineers? Which side of the fence do those guys fall on? And it's not to ridicule education or all establishment. That's not what, what I'm suggesting. What I'm suggesting is there are some establishments who just want to churn out students. And there are some establishments who turn out fantastic, creative people. And traditionally, that's the role of recording studios. That's what recording studios did. That's what I did at Conk. That's what I did at Mute. I learned how to be creative. And I think there's a lot of people that still want to make records. A lot of people who want to know how to make records, even if they only want to be an artist. Mm. You have to be, as I'm sure the situation is across the pond where you are, you have to be diverse in order to survive. So you can't just do one thing anymore. Right. You know, you can't just say, I only want to record hit records with top five artists. Yeah, well, good luck with that. You have to just be prepared to learn everything to do with audio. I think the creative process is very healthy. More people are making records than ever before. Sorting out what's good and what's not good is an absolute minefield because there's <laughs> hundreds of thousands of records released every year. I'm possibly quite lucky. I have a CV that states a certain amount of quality of work mm -hmm. way before people get to me. So before people even arrive through my inbox or through the telephone or for face-to-face, -face, they already have an expectation around me which allows me to filter a little bit and it also allows me to lay down what I'm worth to them in the, in the nicest possible way. But I think the industry is very healthy by the fact of how many people want to do it. I'm not sure what it's like over across, across where you are, but no one wants to go to university to be an accountant. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
No one says, that's where I want to go. Your mum and dad might say that. Right. But most people are like, well, if I have to go to university, can I do the, the two-year record-making course? Because that looks really interesting. Yeah. What I'd love to see is an emphasis on not only the creativity and the technical, but the business. So, yeah. because I'm sure the two of us have the thing in common where we kind of had to figure it out as we went along. Yeah. And there's not, yeah. you know, coming up, there wasn't a lot of strong guidance in that department. It was like, figure it out on your own. And I still feel like I'm figuring it out, even after almost, after 20 plus years. If I could wish anything on students, that it would be that. It's like, if we could teach them how to make a living, how to deal as a freelancer and all the money stuff that goes with it, I think that would be a, a bonus for the future generation. I, I try to teach a little bit of that at my university course, not from a business person side, but from an engineer's producer side. I try to explain the things that I've spoken about here to them. And I, I obviously speak maybe in a bit more depth of how to deal with that and understand, try to make people understand what it is you're faced with. You're sometimes faced with someone whose sole purpose is about my price. They are not interested in who they get to do the job. They just want it done for a cheap price. Right. And there's some people who want to work with Matt, and there's some people who want to work with Kevin. Okay, well, if you want to work with Matt and you want to work with Kevin, this is what it costs because this is what I need to give you 100% of my creative ability because I got to eat, I got a family to feed. And again, I think you're right, education needs to focus a little bit on that because it's, it's quite convenient actually for the industry to not allow us that understanding. We can be pushed around a bit if we don't understand, right? Right. So I'm trying to develop a couple of things this year where we can maybe change the way education within the, the, the studio sector is, is delivered because I think, I think it needs a bit of a shake-up really because it's just YouTube videos of people going, hey, this is a 1176, this is what this does. I don't want to see that no more. I'm bored to death of it, really, quite frankly. Right. You know, and, 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 and don't get me wrong, the people that are doing it are doing it with great intention. But I think it's about time we, we could develop that a bit, I think. As an industry, I think we can develop that. Yeah, well, definitely, definitely as an industry, we could do better in that department. Where is it that you're teaching? Are you teaching at a, you say you're teaching at a university there? Yeah, I teach on the master's degree at Westminster University here in London. It's a one-year course. It is very intense. There's loads of creative work on it. We have some great facilities at the studio. We've got something like 15 studios there. Wow. Including a huge SSL duality room with PMC 5.1. And we're going to have Atmos this year. And we've got loads of other little rooms as well. It's a really great place. The course, we've developed it over 15 years. We believe it's one of the best courses in the UK for music and audio production. Because we don't just teach you music, we teach you all sorts of audio. Anything to do with audio, we deal with it. And we hopefully give the students that leave there some thoughts about how to... to develop careers in the audio industry because it's not the music industry anymore. It's the audio industry. We're <laughs> audio engineers. We're sound engineers. Well, if you could make sure and shoot me a link to the program so I can share it in the show notes for those that are there that would be interested in uh, doing the program. Yeah, we have loads of students from America. Loads of students oh, really? coming okay. over. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a worldwide course. That's great. You know, we have students from South America, Europe, China, America, all over the place. They all come to us. We've got a really good reputation. We've got some great alumni, alumni there. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a really good course. I, I think it's a great course. I've taught in a lot of universities and colleges, and and this is the one that I'll still still keep doing. Oh, that's great. Well, I tell you what, we are out of time. Audience, I will of course include in the show notes and links links to check out more about Kevin and, of course, his podcast and this university course we're talking about. Basically, all things Kevin will be included in the show notes for you. So, 
Kevin, thank you so much. It's great to meet you and I enjoy your show and I'm sure my audience will as well. So you take care. Thank you so much for letting me come on the show. Absolutely. Talk to you later. Take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Kevin Paul here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hey, thanks a lot for being here with me today. Really appreciate it. If you want to help out the show, head on over to wherever it is you listen to podcasts, whether that's Apple Music or Google or Spotify, wherever it is you're listening to the podcast and leave a five-star review and write up something nice if you have the time. That always helps out and lets others know that you like the show. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith, the magical voice. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Feel free to send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called audio life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com. Check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.